Hello, I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. In the past few episodes, we've heard about the construction of tunnels, bridges and stations. But this week, we're looking at what brings all of this infrastructure together to create a functioning rail line. This episode is all about systems and the importance of seamless integration. A modern railway system like HS2s is not one single thing. It's a complicated layering of lots of individual systems. Okay, so that's the um, that's in essence the uh, the the track slab system or the track system. We have you then have a, an overhead line system. That's a a, um, a system in its own right. You then have the power supply system that sits behind the overhead catenary system. We then have an M&E system, which is the most detailed part of it is our tunnel ventilation. The next system to talk about is our train control system. We're using the European standard system called ETCS, European Train Control System. That's Chris Rayner, HS2's head of systems. And as you can hear, a modern high-speed rail system has lots of different parts. We then have our centralised systems that go in our network control. So those are train control or, um, or traffic management and a bunch load of engineering systems that sit in, in control. And we have an ops comms element to this. So this is the communications, the fibre communications that are needed up and down the railway to link together things like the train control system and communication systems. We then have a radio system. The UK's rail system is nearly 200 years old, and as it's been developed over time, it has become a lot more complicated. There's a whole set of reasons for that. We're using much more technology. We're asking much more of our systems, greater speeds, much more interoperability. There's much more expectation from passengers, much busier. So um, as we've progressed through time, Projects have moved into this really complex stage. They take many, many, many years. So over the last 40 or 50 years, people have started to think much more of railways as a system. And over the last perhaps 20 years in particular, people have been putting much more of a system thinking and um, systems engineering construct around large projects like, like HS2. Clive Roberts is a professor at the University of Birmingham, which is part of an organisation called UCRIN, the UK Rail Research and Innovation Network. The UK Rail Research and Innovation Network is comprised of eight founding universities and 13 founding private companies. And it was conceived back in 2016 and finally funded in 2018. And what it does is it, it brings together researchers in universities with private companies to really accelerate um, the throughput of research and innovation just to make stuff happen quicker. So it gets out of our labs and into the real world and we get benefit to passengers, to saving costs much more quickly. A lot of Ukraine's work focuses on making incremental updates to a very old network. We really, what we would call sweat our asset, we really 
ask an awful lot of it, and more than many other places in in, in the world, and more than um, quite a lot of modern railways. So, so at the university, we obviously work in in in, in Britain, but we we work all around the world because Britain has particular expertise on how you take old infrastructure, old railway infrastructure, and move it to the modern age and get an awful lot out of it. Get lots of operations, lots of train movements out of it in in relatively good 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 efficiency and punctuality. But HS2 provides an opportunity to create a truly modern railway system. And each element of this system has been carefully selected to ensure that the railway can run efficiently for decades into the future. There, what we're doing is is thinking much more around how we get the maximum benefit out of the system and how we make sure that when the railway opens on day one, its performance is as you'd expect it for its whole, whole life. It has high levels of punctuality, high levels of reliability, dependability. So there's some real opportunities to, to have a step change in the technology with a new railway. And we, we haven't had a new railway of this scale um, for, for centuries. One of the key systems for any rail network is the signalling system. In the early days of the UK rail network, trains moved slow enough for drivers to receive hand signals from policemen who were hired by the railway companies. As trains have, of course, got faster, signalling systems have developed from trackside semaphore signals to now the use of LED lights, which are more reliable. But UK trains are restricted to speeds of 125 miles per hour because any faster and drivers won't be able to see the trackside signals. And with HS2 trains going 225 miles per hour, this meant that any trackside signalling system was just not an option. We're using the European standard system called ETCS, European Train Control System. We are, like most other new railways who are putting it in, we're, we're adopting the level two. It comes in three levels, level one, level two, and level three. We are adopting level two ETCS, and it's pretty essential for a high-speed line. We're going far too quickly for drivers to, to register and respond to line-side signals for, at anything like full line speed. So um, the drivers are driving on an, on an in-cab display. This means that drivers will be shown all signals digitally from a screen inside the train. HS2 is not just an ordinary high-speed line, but it's also aiming to be one of the busiest high-speed lines in the world. Because of the frequency of our trains, we are having to provide a, an automated overlay onto the ETCS. The Automated Train Operation, or ATO, overlay means the trains are doing a lot of the decision-making on their own. In fact, the, the train is doing most of the supervision there on our train, so the, so the driver's really supervising the supervisory system, if you see what I mean. So. You know, decisions like, do, do I speed up or slow down? Am I um, keeping up with time? All of those things are done automatically. And the, the driver is, li is literally supervising the controls as the train decides exactly where it is with respect to other trains.
With so many trains moving so fast along the high-speed line, a lot of importance will be placed on the control centre. So the, the vast majority of, of the decision-making will take place in the control centre. Catherine Montgomery is the Senior Manager for Train Service Delivery. So what that means is that I am responsible for developing uh, the Network Integrated Control Centre and the organisation of future staff who will, will work there once the railway is built. And designing and staffing the control centre for HS2 is particularly important as they will be responsible for making sure the service runs smoothly from day one. The control centre staff have a lot more information than the driver. They see the big picture where the, the driver or train captain just sees a, a very, very small picture. So the train captain will essentially carry out the instructions of staff in the control centre uh, to the extent that because we've got automatic train operation, the train captain won't won't ex have any expectations about which platform he is routed into at Birmingham Curzon Street, say, um, you know, he will just be, be routed into the platform that the traffic management controller feels is, is best and fits best with the overall service. The new control centre will be situated in Washwood Heath on the outskirts of Birmingham. And to figure out the best layout, Catherine went and looked around other major control centres in the UK, starting with the new Crossrail Control Centre located in Romford. I think the, the one lesson from Crossrail and everyone I've spoken to on the Crossrail project has said the same thing. Uh, the one lesson is really to involve the end users very early. That control centre was designed without a train operating company on board and even without um, end user representatives from the infrastructure manager involved in the, the design, the layout uh, and really the, the functional requirements. HS2 have an ergonomics team working with the control centre's architects to ensure that the layout and design is best suited to people who are working in a safety critical environment. Obviously, Things like attention, distraction, fatigue, workload, both underload and overload, have a, a huge impact in a safety critical environment. So we really need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make that environment as, as pleasant as possible for that end state workforce. So we've got a fantastic ergonomics team here in HS2 um, and the EDP ergonomics team uh, worked really closely together with the architects, the end users, to really ensure that the design of the control centre has that end user in mind. And that goes down to quite a lot of detail, really. It's it's partly about the, the facilities within the building, but also um, just being cognisant of, of what it feels like to work in an environment like that. It's a 24-7 environment. And depending on shift pattern, you can arrive at work in the dark and go home in the dark and um, not really feel like you've, you've moved from in front of a screen all day. Um, so it's, it's really important that we um, use things like natural daylight to try and improve the, the ambiance of the control centre. And that comes down to things like heating and ventilation and light, you know, not having glare shining on their, their, their monitors, making sure that they're, they're comfortable. And the, the key thing is, is 
all that is having enough space and a flexibility of space. But Catherine didn't just visit control centres of other railway networks. She also visited control centres from other industries. Probably the most interesting place we visit was Sizewell B nuclear facility. Obviously, there's some parallels there in terms of another safety critical infrastructure manager. Um, But the thing we were most impressed about there was their approach to training. Uh, They've got an identical control room set up in their training suite, identical right down to the pictures on the wall and the order of the files on the shelves. Someone working in a regular network rail control centre might deal with some form of systems failure every few weeks, but with brand new state-of-the-art systems, staff in the HS2 control centre may spend years before dealing with a live systems failure. So it could be five years before one of our traffic management controllers deals with a points failure in real life, which of course means makes doing it in in practice, in training, um, even more important. No two control centres are the same. And understanding the optimal layout before operations are underway is almost impossible. So we don't for one minute think that the uh, layout of workstations we have for trial operations will be the, the appropriate layout of workstations for when we're running 10 or 14 trains an hour. So having that flexibility to move those around, place people, place different roles next to other roles as as it emerges that they, they need to speak to them more than we perhaps envisaged in the first place. So having that flexibility baked into the design is key. And one of the ways we've, we've done or we've tried to safeguard that in the NICC design is by having a large square room and then you can can do pretty much anything inside that. If you've got a long thin room, you're immediately very constrained by where you can put workstations, etc. Another reason flexibility is key is so that Catherine and her team can have an agile approach to allow for new systems or technologies that might come along in the future. The whole building is based on assumptions, assumed levels of functionality in the systems that the people will be operating, uh, which in turn leads to assumed numbers of staff that will be required. We're expecting to get some very sophisticated control systems, which will um, automate a lot of the routine tasks and, and free up the operators to really concentrate on the high value tasks. However, if that doesn't come to fruition and there is a little bit more manual operation required, then we'll obviously need more people to do that. Part of the reason for this is because Chris and his team have been meticulous in making sure that each of the systems being used are the absolute best available. The overhead line system, when we were thinking about specifying it, we we could have left the choice of the system open to the market and say, look, what we want is an overhead line system. It needs to be suitable for 360K. Off you go. Um, we decided not to do that because overhead line, the choice of the overhead line in the sense of long-term reliability is so important. So we ran a competition, an international competition for provision of an overhead line system. we go for specification. And that led to us selecting SNCF uh, for a system called v- V360. 
which is their standard TGV network overhead line system upgraded for 360k operation. So in doing that, we've got a system that has been proven in many, many years of, uh, of high-speed operation in, um, in France on the TGV network. And we get the benefit of all of that, all of those years of reliability. So that's kind of one example of where we've, we really think we've chosen either the best or one of the best systems in the world. By taking the time to ensure that the best systems available are being used, Chris believes that HS2 can run with extremely high levels of punctuality and reliability from day one. Most of the problems that people on a conventional row is because, because systems are old and there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a problem with um, keeping up with renewals. I mean, reliability per se of the railway with the systems we've chosen should be the same level of reliability of high speed one, which is operating with 10 to 15 seconds of delay per train on average. And the fact that it's measured in seconds probably tells you how, 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 how reliable it is. And that's what we're aiming for in terms of reliability. And you can obviously you can do that with new systems and a brand new piece of infrastructure. One of the biggest areas where systems failure can occur and lead to major delays is with the integration. So that's making sure that all the subsystems that have been created can happily work together. That is one of the problems that, that has, has persisted on major programs in the past. Generally, the idea has been buy all the subsystems, let the contractors deliver them, and we'll come, al come along at the end and connect everything up and hey presto, it will all work. So that really is a, is, is a, is a, a fallacy. So Crossrail, you know, on the, on, on, on the whole, did a really good job, right? They got through a large part of the program and made most of it work. It only takes a few things though, for, a, for a project to not be able to open into passenger service. So, that, so the real lesson is there is that the devil is in quite a lot of details. NASA Majorthy is the Director of Systems Integration at HS2. Systems integration is about managing complexity. Um, so we've got a very complex program of work, lots of engineering, technology, lots of interfaces, uh, all to be delivered across multiple contracts and schedules. So that's a very complex picture. And systems integration is, is about managing the technical aspect of that to make sure all the different parts of HS2, all the different elements, we call them subsystems, they all come together to deliver a working, functional railway for our end users, the passengers, essentially. When you think about design of, of electrical systems, where Every, if you think about the thousands of interfaces between two electrical systems, when you're dealing in, um, in the sense of a railway, and making sure that any changes to the interfaces are compatible. So if one designer changes the thousand of interfaces they've got with another designer, all of that works. Then you think about, about software and software compatibility, changes to software on the rolling stock, for example, uh, being compatible with uh, software uh, on the infrastructure. All of that is a very, very complicated web 
One of the main things HS2 is doing to make sure the integration process goes smoothly is having NASA and his team in place so early. One of the key things that we do is ensure that there's a focal point for integration. So everybody on the program knows we've got a department who, you know, who does integration. So kind of just from a just from an organizational perspective, it's really important. The integration team must first identify how each of the contracted out subsystems will link together. We identify the interfaces between the systems so that when we contract them and procure them, um, it's clear how the contractors are expected to, 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 to fit them together. But beyond that, we also we also specify how built how those how those subsystems will work. We call that functionality. So how will each of the subsystems function and how does that all add up to the operation of the railway? NASA and his team will then work with the contractors to ensure that as systems develop, they can ensure integration always remains a key consideration. It'll literally be just that, just providing technical assurance to make sure as we develop and deliver um, each of our contracts, it is being progressively integrated. There'll be other areas where we as a client need to provide a lot more leadership, um, the more complex areas, and in those we'll have to be a lot more involved to make sure that all of the parties involved with a, with a particular interface are all progressing with the same um, ideas, assumptions, requirements, so that it all does fit together. Whereas probably five years ago before Crossrail, we'd have probably taken the same approach that Crossrail took uh, with the experience of, uh, of Crossrail and the uh, lessons from there, we've, um, we're taking this completely different approach. Even the smallest failure in integration can lead to delays. And so to make sure that all of the systems can be up and running smoothly on day one, the HS2 systems team are leaving plenty of time for testing. We do system integration progressively all the way through. And uh, it really, we really start to see the results of that once we start getting into the kind of detailed design phase where we can see what are we getting integrated products back from our supply chain. When we start doing things like factory acceptance testing and then on-site testing. But we'd like to really bring that earlier, we call that left shift, and try and do as much off-site as we can. So we have made the decision to invest in a system integration facility where we'll, we'll bring together subsystems and, and uh, uh, developing software modules and ask our supply chain to work together as early as possible to test all of that software and all of those interfaces functionally before they get anywhere near being on site. Along with testing the system integration years before the launch of HS2, Clive Roberts and a team at the University of Birmingham are building a digital simulation of HS2 to test out how all the systems will work when the railway is operational. They're mathematically driven, so they, they follow the laws of physics, so the trains in them accelerate exactly against the laws of physics, stuff you might have learnt when you were sat in GCSE or O-level classes are the kind of things we're modelling um, um, around these complex systems. So um, we, we have these, these, these physics models that basically model the movement of the railway. Overlying that, we have the control systems, the digital control systems, and we model, model those, those things as well. The hope is the model will be able to run an exact digital replica of HS2 and prove the functionality years before the physical line is even operational. 
Now, early on in our simulations, before things began to specify, we have quite general models of the railway because we roughly know what kind of trains might have been um, procured and we know roughly what kind of signalling. But as we move through the project lifecycle, as we're doing now, we can make those much more specific. We're now beginning to know um, much more about the parameters of the trains, for example, in a few months time, we'll know much more about the signaling system as that is officially procured. So what we can do is refine our models over over time. The plan is for this model to continue to be used once the railway is operational. So the model that we're doing um, and have developed is is precise enough that we can feed real world data into it, both through the testing phase, but actually in the operational phase. So what we will enable us to do is run the model in the shadow. So uh, imagine in the background a, a model that's predicting all the time what the railway is just about to do next. As things start to veer off, so if under a perturbed situation where maybe something's begun to go wrong, the, the model can stop shadowing the real world and then project forward all of the different opportunities that there might be to recover from that. In, in, and, and remembering that the railway is really complex, it's, it's really difficult for humans to predict all of those things. But the computer can run off and do all sorts of different scenarios and work out what may be the, the best scenario to follow. So that means that we what we have in, in if we develop this model through the life, beyond the life of the, the project, building the project actually into the operation of the railway, that we have this tool that can predict into the future. By adding sensors and collecting data from the line's physical infrastructure and then feeding that data into the digital model, it can then be used to predict when failures will occur. We're equipping a number of trains in the fleet to be monitored so that they so that as the train runs, it helps monitor as well as monitoring itself. Uh, and communicating uh, with the control centre, it helps, it monitors the infrastructure. So track conditions, track deterioration, any imperfections in in the running table, uh, all of that gets transmitted back. The infrastructure itself, almost every aspect of the infrastructure, overhead line, um, switches and crossing systems, uh, all of those systems are monitored, particularly switches and crossings where, you know, or in, a, in kind of common language points, or points failures uh, tend to plague the um, national infrastructure. So all of that's monitored. So we get an early warning of any failures. We get information on weather, on rail temperature conditions, all of the things that engineers would need to, to monitor. Not only will the model help with deciding the best time to maintain or replace an asset, Catherine believes that it will also be a big benefit for the staff in the control room. I think there's there's benefits there from a training perspective. It will give the staff who essentially work in an office a real sort of uh, frontline view of the, of the call face as well. I mean, it can be, be very difficult sitting in a control centre um, to really grasp the size and scale and, and speed of the railway out there. Being located on the rolling stock depot means that the staff will have that overview and they will see the trains which which quite often in railway control centers that's not always the case um, but the digital twin does allow uh, the control center staff to really visualize the asset and also put themselves in the position of those who who are out there on the track the maintenance staff the train captains etc 
Now, the more that rail systems rely on data collection and technology, the more important cybersecurity becomes. I mean, the railways in general, and HS2 specifically, are national, nationally important piece of infrastructure and will be targets of you know, cyber, cyber attacks and, and that, kind of, that kind of security threat. We've seen in other countries where that has had big impacts on the operation of the railway, impacted passengers, cost, cost, a, cost a lot of, lot of money. So it's a, it's a really key thing that we have, to, we have to design for. But the railway does have some, some really specific things, particularly around signalling and control, where we need to be particularly focused because they're bespoke systems to the railway. So we do a lot of work thinking about ensuring the security of, of signalling systems tight testing these sorts of systems. We've, we've done work at the, at the university that has done this at the European level to, to focus on, on cybersecurity issues. While work is of course being done to ensure that the systems are secure from cyber threats, work is also being done to make HS2 the most connected railway in the world. These days, people want to work or interact um, socially using uh, using broadband. So our objective was to provide this as part of the infrastructure build. It's important because coming back and retrofitting this later on an operational railway is really expensive. The, the fibre capacity that we're providing for the operational system, when you provide fibre capacity, you always over-provide. So there's plenty of, uh, of dark fibres to use for all sorts of things. And so... You know, fibre capacity is not a problem, but that itself, the speed of the trains and making sure that you penetrate the coach side and all of that's done reliably has been a little bit of a challenge, which we're, which we're, we're kind of through. But the aim is, you know, you can carry out a telephone call, but you can also operate at pretty reasonable broadband speeds sitting in a train. And we think um, it's probably... Even though other railways are trying to catch up, we think this will be just about the best connected railway anywhere in the world when we open. And again, with, with HS2, we have that opportunity to really think about the architecture carefully early on, knowing that we're going to have to worry about cybersecurity, knowing that we want to, to be able to have all sorts of passenger services, but also all sorts of safety critical services as well. We, we can focus on the architecture at this stage, which really help de-risk some of these, these issues as well. HS2 is a major piece of infrastructure that will be around for more than 100 years. So it's really important for the systems team to consider not just how the systems will work on day one, but how they'll work decades into the future. The railway actually will operate for for 100 years or, or more. And the thinking that we do at this early stage is, is really important to make sure that we don't have a system that's high energy or we don't have a system that is really difficult to maintain and therefore costs a lot to operate. We have a system that can be changed over time because we know all, although we're building something that's state of the art at the moment, it won't be state of the art in 30 years time. So the kind of things that are being done now are things around really Considering those questions, looking at what the um, sort of 
sensitivity of changing to the railway is how it could be made expanded how it could be flexible to make sure we really uh, enable the railway to be future proof in terms of the things we might want to do in into the future for now the focus is on making sure that on the day hs2 opens all of the systems required to run the line will not only be ready but working together smoothly and that lessons are learnt from Crossrail and from other projects so that on this day, the first time that the systems are required to work together, that the integration of these systems is not the cause of delays. One of the other lessons from Crossrail is don't try and be realistic about what you can commission. So if you try and commission every aspect of the railway all at once, uh, you're probably going to fall over. So again, we're we're trying to take this systems approach so we do so we we get an operational railway first and then if other aspects of uh, of the railway you know ops comms we've been talking about and third party comms or not ops comms but third party comms if that has to come a bit later then uh, then that's the right thing to do you know i'd be lying if i said we didn't view this as a high risk area because we do and that's why we put 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 in place earlier team and approach and a framework to 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 deal with this. It is a genuinely high risk thing, and it's it's a central part of HS2's role to to act as the prime systems integrator. So we really recognise that it's our job to pull all this together. It's a hugely difficult thing to do. So we're building our confidence as we go go along. So at the moment, my confidence level is moderate. We've got, you know, we've got 10 years, approximately 10 years ahead of us, you know, of of doing this. So it's a a really big risk. It is a really big risk. It's one of our top risks, perhaps our top risk. And um, it will require an immense effort, both in terms of engineering, but also behaviours, collaboration, contractual support scheduling support to to integrate all of this is really central to the whole the whole endeavor i believe it to be perfectly feasible in in the future to have close to 100 percent reliability there's some real issues around achieving that one is having dedicated railways where we're not making the system too complex so having one type of train so if you look at metros metros around the world have the highest level of punctuality current currently and because they have a a, a system where they have one type of train and they have one type of track one type of signaling and that really enables you to 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 focus um, in 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 that way the 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 other is designing out failure modes thinking much more carefully about what's caused you problems um in 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 the past and making sure that in your future systems um those those failure modes aren't present and and very much that kind of analysis and 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 um thinking is going on within hs2 at the moment and other current modern railway projects next time on how to build a railway. We want to have zero carbon electricity from day one of operation. But in saying all of that, what we build and how we operate is great, but it's how we build it that's as important. 
we already have 19 diesel-free sites. We've seen a lot of our contractors be really innovative and looking at investing in different plant and mechanical equipment, looking at sources of electricity, looking at hydrogen fuels and hybrid plant so that we can really start to accelerate cleaning up our construction sites. Our laboratory is the field. We use portable emissions measurement systems, PEMS as we call it. We take these lab-grade instruments out into the field. We're working with our contractors. They're looking to break even or make, make a profit. If you can have interventions that's actually going to save them money and reduce emissions at the same time, then that's an absolute win-win. Without HS2, we probably wouldn't be we wouldn't have the courage to do what we've done. So HS2, hats off, absolutely brilliant project and it will push the industry on. The legacy for HS2 will be that infrastructure for future generations. But in addition, we will have also learnt some lessons for construction along the way and will have developed new working practices and new materials to really help to clean up construction. Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Chris Rayner, Clive Roberts, Catherine Montgomery and Nasa Majorthy. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.